Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Republican State Senator Alberta Darling, a 32-year veteran of the state legislature, has announced her retirement. Over the course of her three decades, Senator Darling authored more than 200 bills that became law, according to the Associated Press. For more than two decades, Senator Darling was co-chair of the legislature's powerful budget writing committee, the the Joint Committee on Finance. In 2011, Darling survived a recall election in the wake of the Walker administration's stripping of collective bargaining rights. Darling's retirement is effective December 1st, in the midst of her four-year term, meaning there will be a special election to fill the seat. Her departure leaves the Senate one seat short of a supermajority, uh, also reports the AP. Wisconsin ranks number one among states for the most prescription medications collected during this year's Drug Take Back Day. That's according to the State Department of Justice. Wisconsinites turned in more than 27 tons of unwanted medications this fall and have returned more than 500 tons of unwanted medications since the collection day began back in 2010. While Drug Take Back Day technically only happens twice a year, there are more than 490 permanent disposal boxes at law enforcement agencies, hospitals, pharmacies, and health clinics, with more than a dozen in Madison and the surrounding area. Dane County plans to spend about $1.1 million next year to keep 48 jail inmates in other counties due to jail overcrowding, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. 32 inmates are being held in Oneida County, a three-hour drive away, along with 12 in Iowa County and 10 in Rock County. To help inmates keep in touch with family and loved ones, the county will spend $7,800 to subsidize fees to communicate with the outside via phone and video chat. When Sheriff Barrett closed the fifth floor jail in the city county building in August, he cited staff shortages and the long-documented inhumane conditions in the facility. The sheriff's office had 367 sworn deputies last month, 50 to 60 short of its authorized strength. Over the last year, the jail's in-house population has climbed from 579 inmates to 654 as of Tuesday. Five of the largest food pantries in the Madison area say that demand for food is way up, but that supply has decreased. Inflation is noted as the primary driver in this run on food supplies. The federal government reports that rent is up 7%, electricity 15%, and food itself 13%. Financially squeezed households are, of course, more likely to opt for free food items if they're available. A news report in Madison 365 indicated that the number of customers at Badger Prairie Pantry climbed from 1,600 visits in October to about 3,600 this last month. That's more than double in a year. That should be last October to this most past recent month. River Food Pantry said they have registered over 1,300 new families as customers this year. The director said, quote, We are gearing up for a very busy holiday season to meet the growing need for food and household items, unquote. Last night, Madison Alders once again considered giving themselves a pay raise, saying that it is unethical to hold any job in Madison that does not pay a living wage. 
While the raise was eventually voted down, some still say that $13 an hour pay isn't feasible or encouraging. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. After over an hour of discussion, the Madison Common Council rejected a pay raise for city alders last night. That's less than one week after those same alders approved the funding for the pay raise and an amendment to the 2023 city operating budget. Currently, Madison's 20 alders make $14,904 a year, assuming that they work around 20 hours a week. Under the proposed ordinance change, alders would have made $20,604 a year. That would have come out to an hourly raise of over $5 an hour. The idea for a pay raise came out of the city's Task Force on the Structure of City Government, or TFOGS. That task force put forward a list of suggestions to make city government more effective and accessible to all Madison residents. Some of those suggestions called for implementing term limits, reducing the number of alders, and raising alder pay and making alders full-time city employees. Those questions were put before voters last year, and residents voted against raising older pay, making them full-time employees, and reducing the number of alders. Voters did, however, support implementing a term limit. But while raising older pay was denied by residents last year, the issue was brought forward once again last week as an amendment to the 2023 operating budget. There, only a simple majority was needed, and the amendment was passed. But just because they included it in the budget, that doesn't mean that the raise is a done deal. Last night, the raise needed to pass a two-thirds vote in order to go into effect after the spring 2023 election. District 8 Alder Juliana Bennett gave an emotional plea for the pay raise last night. She recounted how she had to work two jobs earlier this year on top of working as an alder. Still, she says she received an eviction notice after missing her rent for three months in a row. While Alder Bennett, a student at UW-Madison, was able to pay her back rent with the help of friends and family, she says it hurts to be fighting for housing equality while not being able to pay rent herself. I know it's not supposed to be personal, but don't we want people that are low income, people that don't have the means to serve in these positions, people that are underserved and underprivileged to be able to serve as alder? How can we say we want those people to serve as alder and we're saying at the same time they don't deserve to have a livable wage? District 6 Alder Brian Benford pushes back. He says that people don't run for office for the money, but for altruistic reasons. I want to say respectfully, Mayor, if it's too hard, if it's too much of a demand personally, if it's just too much, just step aside. Step aside. Benford adds that the notion that the low pay creates a barrier to low-income residents is, quote, a bucket of sheep droppings. That struggle informs our service if we if we're truly looking at it that way it informs our service and it reminds us that there are so many other people living in the city of madison that don't have a seat at the table that don't have the power that doesn't have their voices heard. So I I don't believe that's the case. Still, some alders last night said that the work simply does not equal the pay that they receive and creates a barrier to access for future residents who might consider elected office. While the salary estimates that alders work around 20 hours a week, some alders say that they work more than that and still go home with the same pay. 
District 10 older Yannette Figueroa Cole says that if she didn't have a job that already supported her, she would never have enough time to give the position the time that it needs. So I am very, I am in a very privileged position. Doing this job should not be reserved for people in my situation. Someone established, someone with the means to dedicate time to the job. The city deserves attention and time instead of having to split time among two, three extra jobs. District 12 Alder Syed Abbas, who voted against the raise, says that paying $20,000 a year would not allow someone to quit their day job, and it wouldn't reduce the amount of time alders would need to put into the job. Abbas says that, to remedy that, he has other ideas. In, in that particular situation, it is critical for us to strengthen and use that money in our common council and help alders by providing them some sort of assistance who could be allocated, one assistant can be allocated with four alders, helping them with emails, with some of the constituent service. Again, this is very debatable, right? Currently, the 20 alders on the council share a team of five staff, a chief of staff, legislative analyst, community engagement strategist, legislative assistant, and administrative assistant. Abbas says that before giving himself a raise, he would like to see the city put the money towards those who serve on the city's committees and boards. Most of those positions are unpaid. The idea that Madison alders work too hard for too little reward is not new. Several alders in recent memory have resigned from the council to focus on their higher-paying day jobs. Chris Schmidt served as an alder of District 11 from 2009 to 2016 and had served as council president. Schmidt stepped down after accepting a job at UW-Madison. Schmidt says that had he been able to make a living wage as an alder, it may have changed his career path at the university. Yeah, it was, especially after two years as council president, it simply wasn't sustainable to be an alder and have a regular full-time job. My employers had at the university had been very understanding and flexible, but even with that, uh, it simply wasn't possible to maintain. Schmidt adds that he has seen many qualified alders have to leave their city positions because their duties as alders did not live up to their compensation, and that the high turnover of alders only hurts the city. This year, four alders have resigned from their role for various reasons. Citizens basically demand that their alders be professionals, that they have a professional level of experience and knowledge about what they're doing. And it takes a few years to get there. And if we're not paying people like professionals, we're not really going to get that. Ultimately, the amendment to the ordinance deciding alder pay did not pass the two-thirds majority needed on a vote of 12 to 7. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Earlier this month, three different Madison police officers were arrested across the state over the course of two weeks. Channel 3's lead investigative reporter Naomi Knowles went about her job of reporting on the incident, only to run into roadblocks trying to find even the most basic information about the arrests. Our producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Knowles yesterday about why she reports on crimes potentially committed by public officials while avoiding those accused of everyday folks. And they also discussed the ethics of reporting on crime and Knowles' struggle in reporting on these recent incidents. 
So, Naomi, uh, tell me a little bit about what what kicked all of this off. And that's the three Madison Police Department officers or employees uh, who have been arrested in the last two-ish weeks here. So tell me a little bit about them. What what happened uh, with these three individuals? Sure. So like so many stories do, as I'm sure you know, uh, this one actually started with a tip from, you know, sources of mine. And the tip was that, you know, three three Madison police officers had been pretty recently arrested. And it, it looked like what they had been arrested for seemed to be pretty significant, you know, depending on how significant is defined. So I started digging. Um, and, you know, one of the first things that a reporter is going to do in this situation is reach out to the agency. Um, and also, obviously, to check for charges in court records, which in Wisconsin are fairly available online. And so I, I found out right away that, um, you know, Carrie House, who's a officer at Madison Police Department, had been arrested earlier this month in Columbia County for, uh, you know, char- a felony charge of battery as well as a, a, a other smaller charge as well. So, we, you know, we started off the process of trying to get those court records, which, you know, with counties outside of Dane County can take a little bit longer. Um, and then with the other one, uh, with the other two officers, you know, we were we were facing some roadblocks there. One of them, charges hadn't been filed yet. They were just, he had, you know, just been arrested. Um, we didn't have necessarily full names for all of the officers. And when I reached out to the Madison Police Department, um, the only thing they would confirm to me was three officers had been arrested recently, but they couldn't provide any names, um, or I should say they wouldn't provide any names or any other details about it. So that's kind of where all of this started, uh, you know, last week. One of the things that you spoke about, and you spoke about this uh, online, is is finding information about the sort of arrests, specifically in this sort of situation, which is trying to find uh, even sort of basic information about uh, the uh, public officials who were charged with a crime. And so so tell me a little bit about that, which is the, the struggle to get information and how the information uh, for these three uh, individuals is, say, different from a non-public official. Sure. So with a lot of cases, so for example, you know, we, we see news comes out from time to time where teachers are arrested for something, you know, at a school, uh, other types of public officials, you know, might be arrested, something happens, something goes wrong. And it's, in my experience, fairly straightforward. You go to the agency that has, you know, that employs them, you ask them, is has such and such person been arrested? Can you confirm these things? And generally, in my experience, it's fairly easy to confirm names and charges with the agency that employs them. And in this case, with the Madison Police Department, it, that was not the case. Um, and, you know, as a reporter, I can't go on air confirming someone is indeed a police officer if I don't have all kinds of verification. So the most straightforward type of verification is just confirming with the police department. Well, when you don't have that confirmation, all of a sudden I'm presented with a much more complex situation, right? Because it's only news because it's a police officer. And so in this, so, you know, just to kind of walk through the process with Carrie House, I, you know, initially I was like, okay, well, he'll probably be named as a police officer in the court records. Turns out he wasn't. So we got the criminal complaint. There was no identification of him there in the police, you know, as a police officer. So at that point, there's, you know, a number of different methods that I use to independently verify that he was an officer before going public with that news. Because, again, the Madison Police Department wouldn't confirm when I reached out to Columbia County Sheriff's Office. They, in fact, still have not returned my call. Um, I tried to get in touch with them day of, and it's several days later now. Never heard back from them. Um, 
And so in this particular case, Carrie House had, you know, made headlines almost a decade ago for a different discipline situation. Using that, using some software that I have access to that helps, you know, go through public records, match up addresses, match up other things like that. I was able to, you know, independently confirm using public records, using sources and using other types of verification that this was indeed a police officer who had been arrested for, you know, domestic abuse. Um, it was a similar situation with Keith Brown, the other officer, who, again, was arrested for battery. Um, in that case, it was a bit harder because he had such a common name and there's all kinds of Keith Browns in Wisconsin. And in that case, when you don't have, you know, when you when you have the Madison Police Department who's, refer, you know, refusing to confirm a name and when you have the Dane County Sheriff's Office who is refusing to confirm that this person they arrested is an officer, you have to go through a lot more hoops to really verify that this person is an officer, that it is the Keith Brown that you know is employed by the police department. In that case, it involved us going back to 2015 footage we had in our archives of um, when this person was first uh, or first sworn in. It involved a number of other types of verification until we were absolutely certain we could go forward in identifying this person as a police officer, because again, the Madison police were not able to do that. And so I think one thing to kind of wrap that up, one thing that speaks to is again, it's when you don't have official confirmation, it can be very risky. And it, you know, a reporter and a news organization has to be absolutely 150% certain in identifying a person like this, that they are who that, you know, who you believe them to be before going forward, because otherwise we could face a lot of backlash if obviously we get that wrong. And now, one thing that you did mention uh, in some of your online posts about this a little bit is is this idea of accountability. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I, I I sort of want to ask, uh, what is what is sort of the difference between uh, you know your the information that you tried to gain from this from the Madison Police Department versus uh, you know like a non-public official, just you know uh, your your average everyday person. Yeah, people are arrested all the time for these particular charges, and, and it, it wouldn't necessarily make the news. We don't report on every battery arrest. We don't report on every domestic abuse arrest. However, the the differentiator here is who they are. Police officers are, number one, they're paid by the public. Number two, they're responsible for our public safety. And so when something, particularly a violent charge, um, when they're facing that type of thing, it becomes extremely important for the public to know about that thing. And I say this, you know, we we got emails as an organization. We we definitely got some feedback asking like, you know, why put this out there? Why is this, you know, why does this need to be public news? And, you know, one of the things I said at one point to one person was this is for everyone who these particular officers have interacted with in domestic abuse situations or in battery situations or in violent situations. Those people have the right to know what this officer, what these officers have been arrested or charged for that they have interacted with in the past. It, it's something where people who serve the public and especially people who are expected to protect the public, we have a duty to inform those people when those people may not be safe. And that and that sort of goes into a larger conversation about the role of a journalist uh, in regards mm-hmm. to crime and sort of the ethics uh, behind reporting on someone accused of a crime and and how those ethics sort of change when that person is a public official like a police officer. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, my my organization, Channel 3, the CBS affiliate, we have actually we have this policy in place where we're trying to like 
kind of scale back a little bit, especially in our minor crime coverage. And we do that by, number one, not identifying someone before they've been formally charged in most cases. And in other cases, you know, we're, we're doing our best to rethink how criminal coverage or crime coverage happens. But in this case, we went forward with actually naming one of the officers who was arrested but not charged because it was a violent crime and because it was a public official. And again, it kind of goes back to transparency from the people that we pay, from the people to protect us, that we pay to protect us, is the number one decision maker here. You, you know, as media, our responsibility is to the public and our responsibility is to transparency. So while we can have conversations, larger conversations about where, you know, crime reporting fits into um, our culture today, at the end, that also we have to have a conversation in the context of when this person is a public official, Everything you do is going to be subject to public scrutiny. I think I, I made that comment in my Twitter thread of like, I'm not paid by the public, but I do serve the public as a journalist. And if I were arrested for a violent crime, I'd expect my station to report on that because anyone who's setting themselves up to serve the public and be a face, you know, that is recognized by the public, you do face a higher level of scrutiny. And with that comes more accountability. Well, Naomi, we're, we're running up against the clock here a little bit. Do you have just any final thoughts that you think are, are important for people to know? Yeah, I would. I would include here the the Madison police explanation because, you know, I, I approached them several times, you know, giving trying to give them opportunities to release more information, to ask why they weren't releasing more. And the reasons that they gave me, um, and I'm just going to put these out there without comment, is police, police agencies put out records and information and details to the people they arrest. In this case, because Madison Police Department did not arrest any of these three officers, it was outside of their purview and outside of their responsibility to release details. We needed to go to the people who arrested them, the agencies who arrested them, to get those extra details. In many of those cases, those extra details still weren't available, but that is what you know they told me. And legally, they also have a bunch of considerations in terms of what they can say publicly about a, you know, a unionized employee before the criminal, you know, or the criminal justice process has had, you know, time to take its course. I've been talking with Naomi Coles, lead investigative reporter over at Channel 3 here in Madison, about the three Madison police officers who have been arrested in the past two-ish weeks and the ethics and accountability involved in reporting on this issue. Naomi, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. For the past 75 years, a 200-acre plot of land on the Rock River has served as a retreat for southern Wisconsin's Boy Scouts. Now that plot of land has changed hands. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, feature contributor Sean Bull looks at the past, present, and future of Rock County's newest park. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. You probably assumed this, because I'm a guy who reviews parks for fun in his spare time, but I'll go ahead and confirm it. I was a Boy Scout at one point. I did the whole thing, all the way from first grade through the end of high school, even managed to get my Eagle Badge. 
Some of my earliest memories of living in Wisconsin are Cub Scout outings, and the king of all those were weekends camping. One of the distinct advantages of joining the Boy Scouts over other youth organizations is the variety of available camping options. You'll find Scouts camping in every kind of park all over the country, but they also run their own campgrounds. These allow a concentrated and tailored environment for Scouts to try as many activities as possible in a short period of time. Everything from basket weaving to power boating to rock climbing all fit within a couple hundred acres of land. Picture the kid from Pixar's Up with his sash crammed edge to edge with dozens of merit badges. It just isn't practical or efficient to try and learn all those things within the restrictions of a state or county park. So, over a hundred years, the Boy Scouts of America built and staffed hundreds of private camps. Unfortunately, not everyone can look back as fondly on their time in the Scouts as I can. In 2021, the Boy Scouts of America settled a class action lawsuit because, well, you know. In many ways, they're not a super wealthy organization, so to be able to pay, they sold off parcels of their one major asset, land. All over the country, less used scout camps were wrapped up and sold off. I'd like to do a story sometime on the broader consequences of this, but today we're going to talk specifically about Camp Indian Trails. In 1946, the Boy Scouts of America bought just under 200 acres on the Rock River, just northwest of the city of Janesville. This was said to be a place where Black Hawk and his Sauk followers stayed while on the run from the U.S. Army, so the scouts dubbed it Camp Indian Trails. The natural sloping hills and ravines, thick cover of hardwoods, and wide, gentle river made it an ideal place to build a camp. The scouts cleared trails and campsites, built shooting ranges and an amphitheater, and that was only the beginning. The natural topography of the riverside split the camp in half. The main parking lot, dining hall, and amphitheater occupied high ground on the north side, while the shooting ranges and most of the campgrounds were in the south. Trails wound their way through the 40-foot deep ravine between the two, but why settle for that? One of my favorite features, unique to this scout camp, was the steel footbridge that spanned the ravine. By the 21st century, Camp Indian Trails had lost some of its luster. Boy Scouts are willing to travel quite a ways for a week-long excursion, and there was a better, more full-featured camp just an hour up the interstate on Lake Castle Rock. Still, Indian Trails had its place, and the local community was far from giving up on it. Over the past decade, the property was transformed dramatically. Some of the buildings got new steel roofs and in 2018, they completed an entirely new shower building for the campground. Around the same time, they completely reimagined the ravine. The camp's in-ground swimming pool was at the end of its life, and rather than fix it, they filled it in. To replace it, they clear-cut part of the ravine and built an earthen dam above the footbridge. Rainwater filled this new basin and created a roughly five-acre lake. Besides swimming, it could also support fishing, paddling, and even skating in the winter. By the time the 2020s rolled around, Camp Indian Trails had a new life. But that all was cut short by factors beyond its control. Back to the 2021 National BSA Settlement. Each local council was required to pay an amount somehow proportional to their assets and to the number of incidents within their jurisdiction. 
Our local council could have sold either one of their two camps to pay their share, but in the end, Camp Indian Trails was judged as less essential to their programs. Indian Trails was sold off, and it ended up in the hands of Rock County. So, just what did Rock County end up with? First of all, they renamed their new property to Rock River Heritage Park, so that's what I'm going to refer to it as for the rest of the segment. It's unlike anything else in the Rock County system, just for the sheer amount of infrastructure in place. It has maybe half a dozen buildings, all renovated, many with heat, electricity, or running water. The biggest of these is the dining hall, which has the space and kitchen to feed hundreds of hungry scouts at once. They also have the outdoor amphitheater, which is simple and in kind of rough shape, but seats a similar amount of people. There's also a smaller chapel, which is basically another amphitheater, but prettier. It overlooks the new man-made pond. Rock River Heritage Park has great potential to be an event space for the county. The only thing holding it back is the relatively small parking lot. This was, after all, a place where people were dropped off by their parents, who would then leave and their cars wouldn't take up space. So at some point, either the parking lot will have to be expanded, or the county will just have to work around that restriction. On the weaker side, I'm not sure how much Rock River Heritage Park can offer in terms of recreation. At least for now, there are only a few trails, and they're kind of basic. I'm sure they'll be fine for snowshoeing and cross-country skiing over this winter, but expanding hiking opportunities might need to be a priority for the county in the future. In the same vein, water access is surprisingly not great. The man-made pond will, at least, remain as a swimming hole, but the riverside, where you would more likely take a canoe, was never set up for direct car access. This worked when it was a scout camp, as canoes were stored down by the river at all times. But now, if you want to put in at this park, you have to drag your boat hundreds of feet from the parking lot down a big hill, across the old athletic field, and there's not even really a pier or beach when you get down to the riverside. There are already boat launches within a couple miles, both upstream and downstream, so I imagine paddlers will skip this one. All of that is relatively easy to fix. The county is already working on plans to build more interesting trails and maybe someday expand the waterfront. But what's harder to expand is the park's staff. That's what might prevent Rock River Heritage Park from reaching its full potential. When I talked with Parks Director John Trainer, he told me there are no current plans to continue using the campsites, that Rock County can't justify the extra staff. I get that. But then, what was the point of buying a campground? The showers here are nicer and newer than the facilities at most state parks. I also think it's worth pointing out that Dodge County, whose whole population is not that much bigger than Janesville, manages to fund the campsite at Ledge Park just fine. It would be a shame to leave this part of the park to rot. But I don't really know what the solution should be. At the moment, Rock River Heritage Park has soft opened. The new sign at the entrance isn't even fully painted, but members of the public are free to wander and imagine what the park could one day be. While you explore, there are already a couple structured ways to engage with the park. First, there's a contest entitled Picks in the New Park. Or, I guess it's not a contest because you don't actually win anything. 
But if you take a picture at Rock River Heritage Park that you'd like to share, you can submit it to the park's email or Facebook Messenger for a chance to see it used in future promotions. An actual giveaway that's happening at the same time is the Story Walk. The book, Goodbye Summer, Hello Autumn, by Keenard Pack, has been pulled apart and each page is on a sign scattered sequentially throughout the park. Anyone who submits a picture with the Story Walk is entered to win a copy of the book and a gift basket. I'll include all the submission links in the online version of this article. A couple more events. On January 21st, the city of Janesville will host a candlelight hike through the park. And the actual grand opening of the park is planned for this spring, with a date yet to be announced. Keep an eye out for that on the Rock County Parks website and Facebook as time goes on. Rock River Heritage Park is a new park with a long history but potential to be something just as great going forward. I'll keep an eye on this place, as something tells me it's going to deserve an update in the near future. In the meantime, if you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we cracked the 50-degree mark this afternoon, as we thought we might do. And that's the first time we've reached 50 since we hit 71 back on the 10th of the month. So that's basically two weeks. And as cold as we were during that intervening time, it wasn't quite enough to undo the temperature surplus that was left over from the first 10 days of the month. So we remain at about 1.1 degrees above normal for November so far. Uh, an anomaly which only looks to increase as we go forward from here, though, with the beginning of December coming up in the middle of next week. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, the upper airflow across the continent is currently zonal or west to east overall, with the faster winds basically divided around us, north and south, uh, running through central Canada and down across the deep south. If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening up in the featured graphics, well, you may have a little trouble discerning that pattern because there are some waves currently crossing the continent, and there's also a break in the image sequence from about Monday evening into early Tuesday. That doesn't help. Uh, nevertheless, though, you may be able to pick out, in any case, the northern stream wave that comes onto the continent right after that break on Tuesday morning. With the better part of its energy, its leftward spin sliding across uh, to the east across Washington State before then dropping down the Great Basin basically towards the Four Corners region. And that's all occurring while the northern end of the accompanying trough with that storm continues to slide east across Saskatchewan and Montana. That weaker northern stream part of the storm will continue eastward and a little more northward actually tomorrow and Friday, dragging a weak cold front then through Wisconsin tomorrow evening. 
Modest warm air and uh, moisture return ahead of that feature will be robust enough to saturate maybe the uh, lowest five or 7,000 feet of the air column tomorrow. Uh, but even then, only intermittently, at least to judge from the prognostic soundings off the high-resolution computer models, uh, five to 7,000 feet is not typically uh, deep enough for producing actual rain, so often on kind of mistiness or uh, drizzle may be the result instead tomorrow. Uh, otherwise, no significant precipitation for traveling, though. The remaining energy with that storm that you saw dropping southward towards New Mexico on the water vapor, that will maintain its vigor down there. It's biding its time uh, while an upper ridge passes across the northern states Friday and Saturday. That upper ridge will warm us here. But then comes Sunday, that southwestern storm will lift northeastward out of Texas and approximately up the Ohio Valley. It's unclear at this point where the exact track will be. But that may wet us up a little bit with some passing rains on its northwestern side in that time frame. Uh, again, not a whole lot of concern there on Sunday. During that time, though, the end part of the weekend, a much more amplified set of waves will begin approaching the continent from the Pacific. Once again, as happened a couple weeks ago, unlocking Arctic air from the northern end of the continent and starting to send it uh, southward down the western mountains to eventually carve out a prodigious upper trough over the desert southwest by later Tuesday. That is a prime setup for producing wintertime storms here, so uh, we may turn distinctly more interesting with the weather around this time next week, so stay tuned on that score. But back to the uh, rather more uh, soporific details of the coming few days. Tonight, high clouds will gradually increase through the nighttime hours and be joined by a surge of low-level saturation as we get on towards dawn. That may lead to some fog in the early morning hours, uh, otherwise just low stratus. Temperatures will hold uh, in the mid to upper 30s overnight on light southerly winds up at 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow, passing low clouds may uh, lift a bit as we go uh, into the day or through the morning hours, then thicken more in the midday or afternoon, and that's when a bout or two of drizzle or light rain becomes possible. Temperatures will reach the uh, mid to upper 40s tomorrow on uh, southerly winds at the 4 to 8 miles per hour, veering west and northwest in the evening, and then coming up a bit, up to 10 to 15 miles per hour behind the cold front as we go through the overnight period. That should drop temperatures back towards about 30 by dawn on Friday with some clearing of the clouds later on as well. And Friday, uh, skies will continue to clear, and I think sunshine along with uh, westerly winds up at 8 to 12 miles per hour will take temperatures into the mid-40s. Winds will be backing more southwesterly overnight. That'll hold temperatures just around freezing. And Saturday will start clear, perhaps with some increasing high clouds later in the day as that storm to our southwest begins to rotate a little bit of moisture northward. Temperatures should reach the upper 40s Saturday. Clouds will increase and winds uh, will uh, veer lightly northwest during the overnight uh, with a low temperature in the mid-30s. And Sunday should be mostly cloudy and cool with night north or northeast winds and possible showers passing, especially in the eastern and south southeastern parts of the listening area. Temperatures will hold in the 30s. We'll have a couple of nice days yet on Monday and perhaps on Tuesday next week before, as I mentioned, more interesting weather sets in. The uh, temperature down here at the station on Bedford Street is currently 41 degrees. The dew point temperature is 34. Winds are lightly out of the south, around 5 miles per hour. Uh, mostly clear with just a few passing high clouds, and the barometer is holding steady at about 30.08 inches of mercury. 
We go now to the third week of October of November, 1963. Stu Levitan reports on how Madison reacted to a murder most foul on this week's edition of Madison in the 60s. All They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, the death of a president. Wednesday, November 20th, 1963. President John F. Kennedy begins his last full day in the White House with a Western Union telegram to UW-Madison President Fred Harvey Harrington. Kennedy congratulates the university's orthopedic children's hospital on that afternoon's dedication of the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Memorial Laboratories, funded in part by a quarter-million-dollar grant from the Kennedy Foundation. The president salutes lab director Dr. Harry Weissman on his efforts to, quote, conquer the vast field of mental retardation and its attendant problems. The president also sends his youngest brother, Senator Edward Kennedy, and brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, the Peace Corps director, to tour the lab and hold a dedicatory luncheon at the Memorial Union. It's personal to the Kennedys. Their eldest sister, Rosemary, suffered a botched lobotomy when she was 23 and has spent her life institutionalized at the St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children about an hour east in Jefferson, Wisconsin. It's unseasonably warm and humid on Friday the 22nd, high of 60 and a chance for rain. Madison wakes to find the president's political trip to Texas front-page news, large crowds, but some catcalls in Houston and San Antonio, with Dallas on tap for today. A little before noon, about 800 festive Badger boosters board a special Milwaukee Road train bound for Minneapolis and the UW-Minnesota football game. Eleven months after their thrilling Rose Bowl loss, Milt Broom's boys hope to salvage a disappointing season by at least keeping the Paul Bunyan axe. Then the bulletin from Dallas. David Marinus is in class at West Junior High School when Principal Homer Winger makes the announcement. Growing up in one of the few liberal families in his neighborhood, Marinus is taken aback by how his classmates react, shrugging the assassination off because, in their words, Kennedy was a commie anyway. The South Side neighborhood served by Franklin Elementary School is different. As classes crowd around a large TV, everyone is crying, even the boys. Everyone is also in tears in Gunnar Johansson's chamber music class in Music Hall, as the pianist, professor, and violinist Rudolf Kolisch play Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata. Ben Sidron is at work sorting records in the basement of Discount Records. There's a calendar on the basement bathroom door, where weeks earlier he had written The Cruelest Month on November's page and drawn blood-red daggers on the 22nd. He rips the calendar up and heads for State Street. At 2 o'clock, the UW football team lifts off from Minneapolis by chartered plane. When they land, they learn the Minnesota president has finally agreed with UW President Harrington to postpone the game, now set for next week on Thanksgiving morning. Harrington also cancels all classes and social activities for the weekend, with some classes also off on Monday and Tuesday. In the Capitol Rotunda, Owen Rearson is causing trouble again. He's out on bail from his arrest in September for disrupting a civil rights demonstration after the bombing deaths of four black girls at a Birmingham church. 
Rearson loudly celebrates the assassination as, quote, a miracle for the white race. Wearing a swastika armband and giving the Nazi salute, Rearson tries to distribute racist and anti-Semitic literature before he's again arrested for disorderly conduct. Throughout the afternoon, four campus religious centers conduct special prayer and morning services, with three more planned for the weekend and Monday. The Rathskillers crowded but quiet. There's only a hushed murmur as people jam the man aisle and watch TV. By evening, a hard rain is falling. Madison mourns on Monday, the day of the president's funeral, with religious and memorial services from morning to night. There's little else to do. Except for financial institutions, almost every store and business is closed, at least until early afternoon. At 8 a.m., a flag-drept catafalque stands before the altar at St. Raphael's Cathedral as more than 800 pack the pews and aisles for Pontifical Requiem Low Mass. The Lorraine Hotel sets up some televisions in the lobby. Across the street, another set plays in the pharmacy of the Wisconsin Power and Light Building. A sound system on the Capitol Square blares patriotic songs. The Gisholt machine plant is open, but union workers can take the day off. Oscar Meyer workers observe a moment of silence at 11 a.m. Bars belonging to the Dane County Tavern League shut down from 10 a.m. to 1. Even the bad guys take a break. During the five hours of funeral and burial, there are only six police calls. The norm for that period is 50. After the burial, about 2.30, a silent crowd of 10,000 ascends Bascom Hill to seek solace for one martyr in the shadow of another, at the state's official service at Lincoln Terrace. Carillon bells ring, somber and slow. Muffled drums herald the ROTC units. The university choir sings hymns. The marching band plays the national anthem. Harrington and other dignitaries make remarks. Then the benediction. Taps. Drums beating retreat. The crowd quietly melts away just in time for the 5 p.m. reopening of the four downtown movie theaters. At 8 that night, more than 1,500 overflow the first congregational church for a multi-denominational service. Something is wrong in our land, the Reverend Alfred Swan declares. We rely too much on violence. Too many weapons are flashed before the eyes of the young. After scripture and prayers, many in the crowd cry as they sing America the Beautiful. On Tuesday, the 26th, Dane County Judge William Bensley orders Rearson to the Central State Hospital at Wapon for a 60-day mental examination. For you to derive pleasure and satisfaction from such a wanton act of malicious violence is evidence to this court that you may be deranged, Bensley says. Then Wisconsin officials discover Rearson is on parole from a robbery conviction in California. That night, most campus activities are still canceled or postponed, but some groups do meet. The Young Socialist Alliance has a discussion of, quote, the United States war machine under the administration of President Kennedy. Thanksgiving morning the 28th, the Golden Gophers gobble up the Badgers 14 to nothing. Postscript, February 18, 1964. Wisconsin extradites Rearson to California and San Quentin Prison, where he resumes serving his sentence for second-degree robbery. 
He dies in Washington, D.C. in 1986 at age 46, the same age President Kennedy was the third week of November, 1963. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, President Morning listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Nate Weggehaupt reported, produced, and engineered this newscast. The trifecta there. We should let you host as well, Nate. Uh, Charlie Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.